In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's weekly podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments from London, Brussels and here in Dublin. It's Friday afternoon and Michel Barnier says we are hours away from a deal. We'll have all the latest twists and turns in what looks finally like the final week of a four and a half year slog. Then again, we've been saying that for weeks now. But even if it is Groundhog Day, we'll still have up to the minute detail on where things stand on fisheries, on level playing field and how the EU's COVID recovery fund suddenly blew up into a last-minute dispute. And we'll assess the mood in London and on a rather long stretch of motorway down to Dover, which is currently filling up with lorries. But first, Tony, to you, we left it last week on the mood in the aftermath of a dinner where even the ingredients were being examined for some perceived or actual slight. Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson had dined on scallops, turbot for the main course, and wasabi on the side. Mm. I think, did you say... Scallops, co- with, uh, pa- scallops with pumpkin soup. Pumpkin soup. Which, I, you know, I, I normally have on a Wednesday night myself. And yeah, co- the, a coconut so cream ice cream. But despite yeah. the glittering menu that was on offer, the mood was dyspeptic, to say the least, afterwards. Yeah, that's true. And they issued both uh, fairly terse uh, statements. It all looked very negative. Big gaps remaining. The next day, Boris Johnson said a no deal was a strong possibility and he repeated that sort of sentiment over the weekend but then suddenly on Sunday they had a phone call that was constructive and positive and before we knew it things were back on track so what happened between the dinner on Wednesday night and the phone call on Sunday morning and it's been a bit difficult to piece together exactly what happened but it appears that at some point possibly Thursday the UK accepted the principle that If the UK diverged from EU standards in the future, then the EU had a right to take action, either through tariffs or some other measure, if they felt it was distorting competition. Uh, And that was a a big shift, I think, in, in the UK's position. But the EU also shifted its position, essentially that, yes, while the EU could take action against the UK if there was a clear competitive advantage to the UK by moving away from EU standards on labour standards or social standards and so on, then the EU could take action, but they would have to consult with the UK first through some arbitration process, possibly a joint committee. And this was now being described as managed divergence, which would give the UK the sense that they were allowed to diverge, but it was kind of being managed by both sides to make sure that nobody gets burnt by it. And this was all pretty much confirmed by Michel Barnier on Monday morning when he briefed EU ambassadors to say that there there had been a positive development. And now it was sort of being shifted off the political ledge uh, and into the more technical sphere where you just have to work out 
how to convert this new kind of hybrid approach into a legal text that that kind of works. That's still a a fairly formidable challenge, but that that was how things were pulled back from the brink. Is it a situation whereby the EU believes, for example, that the UK has acted in an unfair manner? Do they have to prove forensically how the UK's divergent action has actually distorted the market? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially the challenge. The EU will have to show that there's been a material benefit to the UK by moving away from the EU's uh, set of standards on the environment, labour standards and so on. And that might be a a tricky thing to do. Clearly, there, there will be some kind of arbitration process that will be ongoing. Those kinds of arbitration processes can take quite a long time. So maybe the EU will want to have some kind of retaliatory action in the meantime, put in tariffs. But the problem with this solution for the EU is that if there is a trade dispute with the UK over standards and there's a tit-for-tat tariffs being imposed, then it's like the, the, the Airbus-Boeing dispute. Some EU member states have been hit by US tariffs because of an industry that they have no stake in. You know, it's only a handful of countries that are involved in Airbus, but yet other countries pay the price for a trade dispute. So that so that is a bit of a risk there for the EU over time. But clearly, they want to make sure that the UK cannot simply have a no-strings-attached relationship with the single market, that there has to be some forum for making sure that divergence doesn't come with a a price for the EU. Um, And they seem to have made some progress on that. Sean, it's a more difficult task whenever the text of a deal, if the text of a deal ultimately lands for Boris Johnson, it's more challenging for him to sell it to his constituency than it is for the European side, notwithstanding the fact that the European Parliament wants to scrutinise it and go through it line by line. It's not envisaged that they would be a major obstacle, although nothing would surprise us at this stage. The rhetoric has been up and down all week. We've seen Boris Johnson, I think, in recent days saying that the EU would have to come to its senses. There's still quite a belligerent tone to everything. It doesn't quite sound, at least on its own doorstep that the UK is admitting to have made many concessions. Well, no, I mean, Boris Johnson said today, Friday, that the UK had, well, he didn't use the word concessions, but he said had been very helpful in moving these this process forward, which is the long-winded way of saying, yeah, we've you know, come climbed down a bit on some of our uh, forward asks and wanted the EU to come to its senses and bring new thinking to the table, even at this very, very, very late stage, in order that a deal might be concluded. But yeah, I I think there was a hardening of the rhetoric, particularly after last night's telephone call with Ursula von der Leyen, because we saw then two statements being issued after the, the telephone conversation. A very short one from Ursula von der Leyen, which majored on fish, and quite a lengthy one from Boris Johnson, which majored on fish and on these level playing field competition issues. That had struck me as, as being somewhat significant because over the past several weeks we've been used to getting joint statements issued firstly by Barnier and Frost after the end of their various negotiating rounds and then jointly by von der Leyen and Johnson after their telephone calls or dinners or various meetings. But now, as of last night, They're going off in their separate directions in the communications. And the British one was talking about the situation becoming very, very difficult, very, very serious. And then we had David Frost tweeting 
the statement from Boris Johnson again saying very serious tonight progress seems blocked and time is running out so there's been an upping of the the rhetorical ante on the British side as we run into these final hours as Barnier said when he addressed the European Parliament this morning. So things are looking a bit ropier there. There is a view being entertained around town that one of the reasons why the British have an interest in pushing the timetable a bit is that they don't really want the Parliament to have that much scrutiny time and they're a bit worried about... What are they talking uh, about? 24 hours in the Commons, 24 hours in the Lord's job done? Well, they're even talking about having it all done in one day. Right. But so the withdrawal agreement went through in short order and it was it was buyer's remorse afterwards with people saying it wasn't fair, we didn't realise what was in it at the time and that's why we had to put the lawbreaker clauses in. It was blamed on the lack of scrutiny. So why the indeed, almost indecent haste now on this? Including by people who stood up in the selfsame House of Commons and said, we don't need any more time to, to debate this uh, withdrawal agreement. We've been debating it for the past three years. Rock on with the vote. And then suddenly, three months later, what a ghastly agreement this is. One of the views is that they don't want lawyers, by which I think they mean Martin Howe QC, to get working on this deal and start finding objections and ammunition for the uh, European research. Sorry, who's Martin Howe QC? He's an eminent barrister who supplies the ERG in particular, but lots of Eurosceptic groups with very well thought out, very strongly argued positions. But again, if you compress the timeline on it, it, A, it doesn't give him much time to work his way through 800 pages of text plus 1,000 pages of annexes and turn out cogent arguments and then convince a bunch of others of varying abilities in the House of Commons to be able to trot out and uh, rehearse similar arguments in on the floor of the House itself and right. try and either stall the bill or throw it out or get it amended. I'm not sure what the tactic would be at that stage, but from the government's point of view, the less time they spend scrutinising it and the faster they get it rammed through, the better they can handle all of the, the PR around dealing with any fallout next year, next year. One of the things that they want to avoid is sitting on Christmas Day. I mean, they all know they've got their uh, duty to perform uh, I think most of them would just like to get shot of it, finish with this, this endless Brexit negotiations, get Brexit done, to coin a phrase, and get on with uh, new business in the new year. There's plenty of other things to be mm. talking about beside Brexit. But at this stage, the House of Commons uh, is in recess officially. They need apparently 48 hours notice for them to be recalled. So if you get a deal dropping on Sunday night, 48 hours later, looks like a Wednesday sitting Christmas Day is Friday. It doesn't give them that much time, does it? No. Uh, anything presented on Christmas Day will inevitably be dismissed as a turkey by the tabloid media anyway. Tony, what about the European Parliament and its ratification? Uh, is there is there any sign that they would present an obstacle at this stage? They do resent being treated as a rubber stamp and they do resent the idea that they would be treated as a foregone conclusion or be taken for granted, don't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're looking at a couple of different options and and none of them are attractive because they were actually originally meant to ratify an agreed treaty on Wednesday, the 16th of December. And here we are on Friday, the 18th, and they're still negotiating. So there was sort of growing resentment and unease in the European Parliament about all that time being eaten away and they were going to be 
presented with a, a treaty and said, here, you've got like three days to scrutinise it and then we expect you to ratify it. Now, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the Commission, had given the European Parliament a political commitment that there wouldn't be provisional application. In other words, this idea that you get a deal in the coming days and it, it comes into force on the 1st of January, but then it's ratified later by the European Parliament because they would have had time then to, to go through it, but they'd be ratifying it post facto, which the European Parliament is dead set against. So what they said was, well, look, unless you guys can get a deal over the line by midnight on Sunday, or and even then they wanted a, a provisional text to look at, they wouldn't be able to ratify on the 28th of December, which would mean that you would either have to go into a provisional ratification, which they would say, we don't agree with that, but provisional ratification, sorry, provisional application on the 1st of January is simply the prerogative of member states. They don't need to get the parliament involved. It's a different legal mechanism that they would use, but obviously the parliament would be very upset. So they're saying, okay, we're definitely not going to ratify by the end of the month unless you get this over the line by Sunday night at midnight. And one uh, interesting proposal by Philippe Lambert, who's a prominent Green MEP from Belgium, who's on the European Parliament's Brexit Coordination Committee, he was saying, why not both sides just make a legal agreement that they keep the status quo for another couple of weeks so that everybody can take time to scrutinise this treaty right, and right. then the European Parliament would ratify it in the February plenary, in the middle of February, which... Okay. Now, I've I, I checked this out and it, it, apparently it can be done. Two entities can draw up any kind of legal agreement that they want, but just it would just look like extending the transition and well, I I would, that, that's, what I was just gonna, that's what I was going to go back to, to Sean on because the provisional application of an agreement with the status quo still being in place it sounds very like the European Commission's contingency planning one of which was that European vessels fishing vessels would still have access to UK waters and the UK response to that was send out the gunboats yeah they've been so absolutely adamant about getting Brexit done by the 31st I mean literally not even a plague has stopped them from going forward on that date. So I suspect they will uh, do everything to get something done by that date. Now, what they do after that, whether they have some kind of a a saleable transition period, call it what you will. I mean, we've spoken about this before, the fact that there's so much that's simply not ready to go, all systems go on the 1st of January in terms of customs, all of the things to do with the the withdrawal agreement that was done last year, let alone any new things to do with the tariffs or quotas that might come in as a result of World Trade Organization rules, that for the sake of common sense, business organizations would certainly love to have some kind of a a grace period, a phasing in period, a transition period. And if that meant uh, having that as cover for additional time for parliamentary scrutiny. I think a lot of the people outside of the Westminster bubble will be quite happy right. with that. Inside it, though, it is politically problematic, and I don't see the, the, the British government backing away from that. Okay, uh, okay. Certainly not until they have a text that they are happy with. Okay, well, all of that is to say we're having a discussion, I suppose, that presupposes that there is a text that people are happy with and they're in the ratification stage. But, Tony, we are not there yet. State aid is not across the line, despite what we were saying at the top of the podcast yet. It's, there are still outstanding areas of disagreement on that. And what we've just mentioned there, fisheries, there's huge disagreement on that. So 
as you understand it, yeah. where are the sticking points in those areas that have been well flagged as difficult? What are the specifics insofar as we know at all? Yeah, I mean, the, the state aid thing seemed to have been pretty much resolved and Ursula von der Leyen told the European Parliament on Wednesday morning that they, they had a pretty much got a, a, an agreement on, on state aid. But there was an issue which came up actually a few weeks ago, which then seemed to disappear, but then blew up again today, Friday. And Darning Street had briefed this story to the Financial Times and the London Times last night over the EU's COVID recovery funds. Now, that's the 750 billion euro fund to reboot the European economy after the COVID devastation. But it's also tied in with the European Union seven year budget, which makes it a a 1.8 trillion euro you know, stimulus package over, over seven years. The UK has been saying, and this was how it was briefed last night, was that whole stimulus package is going to be exempt from EU state aid rules. And yet, if the UK starts to spend money as part of a COVID recovery fund, it will be captured by whatever state aid framework is in this treaty. And that's just not fair. But do EU um, state aid rules not provide for helping out distressed districts and industries as long as they're not being propped up when they're not commercially commercially that, that's absolutely true yeah that's absolutely correct uh, and there you know there's a whole raft of exemptions where state aid can be used in an EU context and a lot of those exemptions i think we mentioned this before have been simply copied and pasted into the UK's legislation. It's stuff like infrastructure, cultural and educational spending, if there's you know a serious unemployment black spot that needs money, and also that you can you can put money into a company so long as you're kind of restoring it to, to health that it that it can stand on its own feet. These are ideas that, that both sides will share. The problem here is that the EU's COVID recovery plan is is not really there to mop up all the debt in in health services around the EU. It is there to say, if we are going to pump a huge amount of money into the into the EU because of COVID, we're not going to put that money into industries that don't make sense. A lot of it is, the it, they want we're, to put a lot of it into kind of green technologies. And, yeah, exactly. And, and green changing technology the nature of the economy. Yeah, exactly. It's a complete reboot of reinvention of the European economy with this huge stimulus, like a Marshall Plan. And the UK is saying, you know, with some justification, well, if, if, if you guys are able to do that and, you know, pump, therefore pump money into European battery, car battery champions, then you can do that. But if the UK puts money into this a similar sector, then we can't because of state aid rules. The difference is, though, that individual member states have to abide by very strict EU state aid rules and the UK will be expected to do the same as part of a a framework in in this treaty. But the EU as a whole, when it spends money through its budget, is not subject to state aid rules because that is a collective pot of money that is there to promote the European good. Right. But Uh, why, why, when the EU is negotiating with the UK bilaterally, would it treat it like it treats a member state instead of treating it like a trading entity like itself? which could use its money the same way. I think it's that the British are worried about competition in this. What the, the, the argument, I mean, Tony has been putting it right there, that if EU states are banned from using state aid at the moment, or controlled, rather, in their use of state aid at the moment, and but those controls could be overcome by routing the money through Brussels, and mm, that, exactly, the yeah, British say, would give... To, uh, to but that, sorry, John, the that, European that, companies a competitive advantage over British companies. But that's what I'm asking. Why would the UK be treated according to member state state aid rules? Yeah, but it wouldn't instead be treated of being tre- to. 
Well, the well, the idea is that is that is that the treaty itself creates a legal framework whereby there is an under there's a legal understanding of how state aid rules should apply, and the way that this has been has been cooked up on both sides is that you have high level principles that both sides share. Then the UK has a robust independent regulator that will police state aid spending. Then the EU would have a you'd have a dispute settlement mechanism, and then the EU could take retaliatory action if they feel that a, a European sector has been screwed because its rival over the channel is getting a big pot of money from the government. So, so there is going to be a shared framework. But the, the point, the complaint from the UK is that this COVID recovery fund is going to be outside that shared framework. Uh, and therefore, those companies that might benefit from the, the COVID recovery fund, which is, as Sean said, it's going to be putting money into the Green Deal and the dig- digital economy. That's an exemption that is unfair because UK companies, if they, if the UK government has a big COVID recovery fund along the same lines, because it's a national government, it is going to be treated differently than the collective you know intergovernmental arrangements of the EU the big problem for the EU in this is that the European Commission has the sole authority to distribute budget money to member states under the treaties if the UK suddenly had a surveillance right over what what the European Commission does when it disperses the budget funds then you would need to change the EU treaty because the commission has the sole authority to say this is how we're spending the EU budget in different member states. It's done according to a methodology that's been there for years and years and years. Suddenly, if you had a situation where the UK could say, well, actually, we don't agree with you spending money in that particular field, then the EU would say, well, you can't have that authority over the European Commission when it spends money from the EU budget. And I guess some of this plays back to the fears. I mean, the EU had this fear of Singapore on Thames, that the British were going to be outside of the EU rules on state aid and would then be channeling money into all kinds of businesses and industries and doing tax cuts and all kinds of things that would make Britain super competitive. On the flip side of that, you have this fear on the British side, perhaps, of the EU becoming this federal super state that some of them have talked about for years and taking a big pot of money and using that centrally to develop an industrial policy. And so these are our opposite sides of the uh, the same coin, if you like. And on the one hand, hyper deregulation. On the other hand, hyper centralization. Perhaps both of them overblown in reality, but certainly in the theoretical world of trying to set up a framework by which two sets of state interventions are controlled and that you have these level playing field issues and these competition issues that they have to be addressed but certainly it was a bit of a a a curved ball coming out of left field the tony mentioned that the marshall aid inflation adjusted this is several times bigger than the marshall fund so it is an enormous pot of money that's out there has potential to do enormous changes within the way uh, the European economy works. A a former diplomat that I was just exchanging some text messages with this afternoon said it would be like Canada and Mexico complaining about US federal emergency spending for Hurricane Katrina or something like that in in a NAFTA setting. Not quite the same, I don't think, but... 
you do get into really sensitive territory Sovereign, here. These are sovereignty issues. I mean, yeah, this is EU exactly, sovereignty yeah. being interfered with by the British and vice versa. What the British have consistently said is they want to be treated as a sovereign equal. So for the purposes of these negotiations, rather than having the rules of a state, they want to have the rules of a block applied to the UK. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, th- I think I think I mean, you can see that that there's it's there's kind of there's reason on both sides yeah. here. You know, like, I mean, I, I first heard of this about uh, two weeks ago and I was speaking to one UK official who said, look, you know, the EU says they want their COVID fund to be exempt from state aid rules. But if we do it, then we, we get screwed by state aid rules. And that's just not fair. No, I, I followed that up with a query to the European Commission um, who, who didn't really get back to me at all. <laughs> right. on this, And then it, it just kind of disappeared from view. But then right. it blew up again today in the Financial Times and the London Times. So it was clearly being briefed well, last it, uh, night. So whether, whether this is kind of last minute brinkmanship by the UK I'm not sure it's last minute brinkmanship, Tony, because just this afternoon, Friday afternoon, a report has dropped out of the uh, EU scrutiny committee in in the British Parliament House of Commons. This is the one chaired by uh, Bill Cash. That's Sir William to you, Colm. I'm actually living in a republic, Sean, so it's Uh, Sir No one to me. It's plain old Bill. It might be Sir William to you, Sean. We'll send the bill to you later. They've published a report on an evaluation of EU state aid rule book. The commission had uh, announced a review or a fitness check on uh, some elements of its uh, state aid rule book in order to do changes like the European Green Deal and make some tweaks and changes in that. Uh, and they have been saying it remains relevant for the UK even as a non-member state. So this is an important issue being recognised by the British Parliament that even after the 31st of January, if for no other reason than Northern Ireland is still going to be subject to uh, EU state aid rules, but also that ongoing interaction where the EU would likely seek to export, as it says, the application of its state aid regime on a unilateral basis to other countries, namely the UK, of course, and the direct economic interest the UK would have in seeing which companies would get state aid inside the EU and how that would affect competition inside the UK market or on other international markets where UK and EU firms would be competing against each other. So they have a very Brussels effect really, isn't it? It is the Brussels effect. And so this is going to go on and on and on, whether it crops up now in these talks process or whether it crops up next year uh, or in 20 years time. I think state aid arguments are going to be there forever. It seems like a last minute curveball because of the deadline that's been set on this. But this is a super speeded up free trade agreement negotiation. This is unprecedented. Really, when you take the pandemic out of it and the cancelled meetings and everything else, there has been very little time to negotiate a free trade agreement. The UK didn't want an extension to the transition. They let that deadline pass in July. And here we are up against the buffers in terms of the timelines to get this across the line. And something as big as this is being Mm. put on the table. It's big enough to be scrutinised and it's big enough to be scrutinised for weeks, months and maybe even years in the normal course of things in a trade negotiation. But because it's up against that deadline, it's probably not going to get the scrutiny or the debate it deserves. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's that's absolutely true. And it's not, I don't think it's fair to say the European Parliament is simply grandstanding and saying, oh, we want to have our moment in the sun. Member states as well haven't seen the text. And we, we talked about this last week. And member states have to scrutinise this before they conclude what's called the, the, the decision on signature. And then it goes to the European Parliament. But, you know, some, some member states have parliamentary procedures they have to run this through or they have to, like in Denmark, you've got the European Affairs Committee. But as someone said, you know, like member states 
have for, for quite a while now been wrangling over the Mercosur trade deal, the Singapore trade deal. We had CETA up here during in, the week. Exactly, CETA yeah, in they Ireland. They had to suspend Canada the debate not, on yeah, the Canada Free Trade months, Agreement. Yeah, we had to suspend had that during the week this, because you know. of divisions within the Green Party. Yeah, and, and you know here we are with the biggest and most important free trade agreement that the EU will sign this century with their next door neighbour and competitor and yet it's being rushed through in you know a matter of days if not hours and so people are right to say you know hang on a second this has to be scrutinized this needs to go through proper votes and through proper committees and none of that is happening so it is you know with undue haste that they are trying to get this over the line so that everybody can move on and, and get pros- back prosper to their mightily. lives and prosper mightily yeah, yeah. fish in a nutshell the positions haven't really moved up to this point. So the European Union started out with this idea that the status quo would prevail. They would have continued access to UK waters and catch more or less the same amount of fish. That obviously wasn't going to fly with the UK. Then a few weeks ago, we reported that Michel Barnier had said, OK, there's 650 million euro worth of fish that we catch in UK waters every year. We will give you back between 15 and 18 percent of that. The UK said, not a chance, that's way too low. And they said, we want about 80% of the fish in our waters and you get 20%. And then there was the question of when all this would happen. The EU saying, well, we want a 10-year phase in for this. And then we have a review clause after 10 years. And in the review clause, we bring in the free trade agreement as well so that we still have that link between fisheries and and access to the single market. Michel Barnier said those very words this morning in the European Parliament, it being Friday. And the UK has been very unhappy with that. They want a three-year phase-in period with the a kind of an upfront down payment of 300 million euro worth of fish by way of a quota transfer up front and they also want to strip out the whole pelagic sector from this free trade agreement and instead have that dealt with through this independent coastal states forum it's an informal gathering of independent coastal member states like russia iceland norway the faroes and so on and that's seen as a bit of a free-for-all which you know is, is not great for stock management you have that all of that then in the meantime the uk introduced a paper on the 6th of december saying actually we're going to renationalize effectively the british fleet there are huge dutch and spanish interests who own boats and own quota own the majority of the english two-thirds two-thirds of the english or at least 55 percent is owned according to bbc investigation is of the of the english quota and vessels because quota is tied to the vessel owned by dutch and spanish and icelandic fishing companies so this paper landed like a bombshell on the 6th of december and what they were saying was there has to be a clear organic link between flagging a, a vessel in the UK under a British flag and the economic activity that goes with it. So you'd have to land the fish in the UK. You couldn't process them in Spain or France or wherever. All of the crews would have to be British. At the moment, none of those or very few of those crews would be British. They would be Dutch or probably from somewhere else around the world. And there would be other restrictions as well. Now, the UK is saying, well, we are just codifying what is in the common fisheries policy because coastal member states can have some restrictions on ownership, the share of of a boat that has to be owned by a French person, say, for example. And that's true. But what the coastal states are saying, look, if you bought a French boat, you knew that when you bought the boat. When you bought a British boat, 
you were told that this was going to be the status quo for years and years and you could therefore invest in the British fishing industry, you could invest in, in British quota, but now they're being told actually those rights are being taken away from you. The Dutch and Spanish are furious about this. They say this amounts to expropriation of uh, ownership rights. So this is really added to a fairly toxic mood as we go into the last weekend right. of these talks. And Michel Barnier this morning has been on the phone to the coastal member states, not to fisheries ministers, but to the Sherpas, so the chief advisors of the prime ministers of those states, have moved it up the political food chain and trying to get to see how far they can move on the position. What I'm told is that he's talking now about a quota share, not of up to 18%, but of maybe up to 23% going over to the UK. But the UK is still looking for 60%. So you can see that's not a huge offer, according to the UK. So, I mean, I think on that basis, given how difficult this is, it, it could be a long weekend of negotiations. Another And we could be back weekend. here next week. Yeah. Right. I, I wonder, are fisheries ministers the right people to ask about this, though, Tony? Because, uh, you know, they've just come through the usual uh, difficult negotiations on the annual uh, fisheries yeah, round earlier a, with, this with, week. With big, big I, I know they have sleep. the numbers. <laughs> yeah, big loss of sleep, but also yeah. they, they have the numbers at their hand. But, you know, you know yourself, it's a particularly hard-fought type of agreement. Maybe it does need to go to a higher political level. I also noted that a little sidebar, not quite intervention in this during the week, but an interview with uh, Politico, nevertheless, by Bertie Ahern, former Irish Taoiseach and dealmeister extraordinaire behind the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 and chaired the European Council to its conclusion of the 2004 Constitutional Treaty. He said the British are right to seek a bigger slice of the fish pie. He's saying, look, it, there does need to be a rebalancing, but the British do need to give way on level playing field issues. They can't export into the EU single market without paying their proper dues. And that's how he basically puts it. It's the fish it's a trade for off. market access mm. trade off. But saying the British were right to seek a, a bigger slice of the fishing market. I wonder is that teeing up uh, the Irish for having another go because they have a very large slice of the EU territorial waters but not much of a take out of it and of course like all the well, other Well there's serious concern about where, about where the, the boats go when they leave. Yeah, where do the boats go when they leave? Yeah, where when they leave British waters and find themselves yeah. uh, the Irish fishermen don't want to see more European vessels fishing in Irish waters where yeah. they already feel the squeeze. Yeah, Indeed, I mean I, th- I think I think in the long term there is there is genuine concern at an EU level that Brexit could really weaken the common fisheries policy and that in the end, if the UK does get control over its waters in a complete sense, then they could start saying to individual coastal member states, hey, why don't we do a bilateral agreement and then the common fisheries policy collapses completely. And that's not a far-fetched fantasy. That is something that is is concerning people uh, within the European Commission. There's been conciliatory noises being made by both the Taoiseach, uh, Michal Martin, and the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, saying they said it's not about winners and losers, and they were talking about compromise and creativity. Is that the path we're on as we look ahead towards the weekend? I mean, it was 50-50, then it was 51-49, Last week, there was a kind of a pessimistic tone at the end of this podcast. Now they're talking about a narrow path. Is it a tightrope or a plank? I think it's uh, yeah, it's, it started out as a tightrope and it's it's becoming a plank. But then are they walking the plank <laughs> 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 overlooking shark infested waters? I mean, I th- look, I think 
given how far they've come and how close they are to an agreement and we all knew that fish would be an ugly fight at the very end and okay we have this last minute problem with state aid and the covid recovery fund i certainly think both sides really want a deal at this stage Uh, there's a lot of posturing and rhetoric about australian terms and no deal at the end of the year being absolutely fine nobody really wants it in their heart of hearts and i think they will just keep at it and and get an agreement and the fact that michel barnier was really pushing senior figures within the prime ministerial offices of the coastal member states this morning to look and see how far they could go on fish. I think that's an indication that he wants a deal. And talking about creativity and probably should just mention some of the personnel involved and how they brought their expertise and experience to bear. A key figure in this is Stephanie Rizzo, who is a French economist who once worked with Olly Wren and worked on the Irish desk, in fact, in the European Commission in the, in the period leading up to the bailout. But she, of course, was part of Michel Barnier's team in the withdrawal agreement negotiations, master of detail. She was then brought into Ursula von der Leyen's cabinet as von der Leyen's chief Brexit advisor. And in the past few weeks, von der Leyen has kind of inserted her into a much more prominent role in these negotiations. And that was seen... What do we read from that? Well, it was seen as the Commission suddenly moving up into deal-making mode. Now, this hasn't been confirmed yet, but there is a strong belief that she was coming up with ideas to help the UK step into a space on this level playing field. She came up with this idea of a joint committee whereby there could be a period of consultation before the EU takes retaliatory action against the UK if there's a too wide a divergence from EU standards. And, you know, she has been very active with, with other ideas. I mean, I think at, at a certain point, and we probably mentioned this last week, member states were a little bit alarmed that she was had gone too far in the problem-solving mode and was uh, pushing Michel Barnier off the mandate, which would have looked uh, very, they, which would have been good from a UK point of view. They might have seen that as an yeah, encouraging well, the UK sign. Were they did talking That's exactly very positively about about her. Yeah, yeah, and and also that in the usual divide and conquer way, it was being spun in some quarters that von der Leyen had lost patience with Barnier and had sent in Riso basically to undermine him when he was off self isolating, and that was a sign that Barnier was going to be marginalised as a, a deal was being converged on between the top floor of the Commission building and Number Ten Downing Street perhaps uh, over-egging it somewhat. Okay, so we could be reconvening on Sunday. That is an upbeat thing, but if I sound downbeat about that, uh, you, you might you might forgive me. I'm not entirely convinced, nor... At least, uh, at least we won't be convening on the, the 25th. Or will we? Or will we? <laughs> not unprecedented, Sean, yeah. you were saying before we went into record. Oh, no, there is a precedent. 1656, um, Oliver Cromwell, he of blessed memory, insisted on the Parliament meeting. He had a podcast. Mm-hmm. It was almost as long-running as our one. He uh, had the Commons in on that day. They didn't pass very much legislation. MPs not too fond of the idea of cancelling Christmas for COVID and definitely don't want to cancel Christmas because of Brexit. I should also just mention today, Friday the 18th, is the last day on the government payroll of one Mr Dominic Cummings. So uh, you can make of that what you will also. Perhaps the uh, things will start to change a little bit in terms of tone after, what, five o'clock this evening. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungo, and RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's London Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.